that encompasses 13 chapters of the book of Genesis is, is finally winding down as the summer of 2018 runs its course. We have one more part after today. The story began way back on June 3rd with a 17-year-old boy sold into slavery in Egypt by his jealous brothers. Through a bizarre series of events, he winds up before Pharaoh himself, interpreting his dream and a coming period of prosperity to be followed by an extended season of consuming famine. Pharaoh was so impressed, he put Joseph in charge of preparation for the famine and made him second in command over all of Egypt, the most powerful country on the face of the earth at the time. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, back in Canaan, Joseph's father Jacob was grieving over what he thought was the death of his favorite son Joseph and his brothers were dealing with the guilt of how they treated their brother and how they lied to their father. Twenty plus years passed and life went on. Soon the famine spread into the land of Canaan and Jacob sent his sons to buy food from the seller of corn, Zaph Nath Paania, who turned out to be Joseph, their long-lost brother, incognito. Joseph played some mind games with his brothers and discovered where their hearts were at. He also discovered how much they loved each other. And, and, and they discovered, he discovered that there was indeed remorse in their heart for their mistreatment of their brother Joseph some 20 years prior. In the process... Joseph discovered that Jacob, his father, was alive and well back in Canaan. And as we left off last week, Joseph had sent great wagons and carts with the brothers back to Canaan to bring Jacob and all of his family to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph and ride out the time of severe deprivation. Little did they realize the Hebrew people would be there until Moses led them out some 430 years later. Genesis 46, beginning in verse 1, says, And Israel, which is another name for Jacob, and Jacob took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel. God spoke to Jacob in visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Fear not to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation. And I will go down with you, it says in, in verse 4, and I will go down with you into Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon your eyes. Meaning that Jacob would die in Egypt. Jacob heard from God, that passage says, go, go down to Egypt and I will go with you. I think that's a very significant passage. One of my concerns for the modern believer, one of my concerns for the Christian in the year 2018 is that we go on a lot of road trips 
without ever consulting God. Far too many of us make our own decisions in life and then we ask God to bless our folly. I think a lot of things would be different if we actually sought first the will of God. We seem reluctant to bring God in on the front end of things. Sometimes I think for fear of what He might say. It's time that we begin to seek the face of God in all of life's decisions, from where we work, to where we live, to what we do, to who we date, to how we spend our money. And we need dads who seek direction from God and and families who who gather together around the table to pray, not just at mealtime, but at decision time too. We still serve the God of Jacob and He's waiting for us to ask. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 says, Ask. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks, receives. And he that seeks, finds. And to him that knocks, the door shall be opened. You see, Jacob heard from God. And he began his journey. And we need to hear from God before we move too. Verse 5 says, And Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their cattle and their goods that they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all of his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, and his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. It was, it was quite a journey, especially for an old man. But then again, life is quite a journey. The journey of life generally happens in four stages. It starts with formation. In the formative years, you imitate those closest to you. Infants mimic the funny faces parents make. Children copy their older cousins and older siblings. We watch and learn more than we realize from our friends. And the goal of the first stage of life is, is to teach us how to operate within society so that we can coexist in the world with the rest of the human race. Then there's a second stage, the discovery stage. And and stage two of life is the process of beginning to spread our wings. When I was a youth pastor, I would say, parents think teenagers are younger than they really are, and teenagers think they are older than they really are. This explains a lot of our problems. And in stage two, in that discovery stage which typically extends into young adulthood and includes a period of foolish, even terrifying experimentation that often includes consequences that can carry over 
into the rest of life. I, I, hope, I hope that that sentence sunk in. And then there's the commitment stage. This is when life begins to take some shape. We commit to a life's work. We commit to a spouse, family, children. We begin to think in terms of paying bills, saving for college for our children, and all the responsibilities and duties that come with being an adult in the world in which we live. And for the most part, this commitment stage of life is the ministry stage. Now, the final stage of life is legacy. We begin to wonder what difference we made in the world. Many have, had, have adult children by then, and even adult grandchildren, and areas of strength and influence that we've invested in over the years, and, and all of that makes up our legacy. Now, it's worth noting, church, it's worth noting if we lose our way in the commitment stage, we can suffer regret and remorse in the legacy stage. Jacob was on his journey to Egypt. His life journey was winding down too. Life comes and goes regardless of what we do with it. You don't get a do-over from your deathbed. You have to live with all your mistakes and all of your selfish decisions. It's one thing to look back at the folly of youth. It's another to lament an entire lifetime wasted. Don't let the journey of life slip by without seeking God for your place in the world. You can say amen to that. Amen. Formation, discovery, commitment, Legacy, the four stages of life. Jacob's journey to Egypt was long and difficult, but the demanding trip was worth it with the prospect of a reunion with his long-lost son, Joseph. And finally, Jacob arrived. Verse 29 of Genesis 46 says, And Joseph made ready his chariot, and he went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen, and presented himself unto him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck, the Bible says, a good while. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die. Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and you are yet alive. Verse 31, Joseph said unto his brothers and unto his father's house, I will go up and show Pharaoh and say unto him, My brethren and my father's house, which were in the land of Canaan, are come up unto me. And it's here in this moment that Joseph's two worlds collide. Remember, he's Zaphnath Paenia, second in command of all of Egypt. And by this time, he's very Egyptianized. And maybe, maybe we miss this in the story as we read over the paragraphs. We lose the time frame. But by this time, he's very Egyptianized. And make no mistake, this is home to Joseph. He's lived here longer than he did in Canaan. And yet, he's a Hebrew. And now his family from Canaan has moved into his Egyptian world. His past has, has arrived at his present. The history, his history and his 
future are, are intersecting. Joseph has not seen Jacob in 25 years. And now they'll stand together before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph's two worlds are colliding. Verse 7 of chapter 47 of Genesis says, And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh. And I love this. It says, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Verse 8, And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old are you? Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years, few and evil. Have the days of the years of my life been? I have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob, it says it again, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before him. I think I'm gripped most, though, by Pharaoh's question. How old are you? Jacob gives an interesting answer. Few and evil have the days of my life been. Few, I suppose, in comparison to his ancestors. His great-grandfather Terah lived 205 years. Abraham, his grandfather, 175 years. Isaac, his dad, 180 years. Jacob, at this point, is 130. His days, in a sense, are few. And his days were evil. From the moment of his birth, he was pegged as a deceiver, a supplanter, as he grabbed at his twin brother's heel in a supposed effort to displace him as the firstborn. The list of Jacob's transgressions was lengthy. There was the swindling away of Esau's birthright, the deception of his father concerning the blessing of the firstborn, the controversy with his father-in-law Laban, a disregard for his wife Leah in favor of the more beautiful Rachel, and the unhealthy favoritism toward his son Joseph. His, his days were evil. As we look back at the years of our life, my hunch is we could all tally quite a list of transgressions. We all have a few skeletons in the closet. Can anyone say amen to that? Amen. Maybe more than a few. How thankful we are, how thankful we can be that they aren't recorded in the pages of Holy Writ. How old are you? Jacob's years were marked with evil. But at this point in Jacob's life, these marks were more scars than defining characteristics. His later years, after all, had taken him in new directions and to different places. The defining characteristics of Jacob's life now involved his encounters with God. Let's look this morning at three of Jacob's encounters with God. Number one, in Genesis 28, he stood at the foot of the ladder of prayer. And in verse 12 of Genesis 28, it says, Jacob dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on earth, and the top of it reached into heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. 
And behold, verse 13 says, The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac and the land whereon you lie to thee I will give it and to your seed. It was a a confirming of the covenant made with his father and his grandfather before him. And yes, Jacob was to be part of the plan. Jacob heard from God. He heard from God. His vision came from heaven. Jacob knew what it meant to pray. He knew what it meant to hear from God. He was willing to do what it took to access the throne room of heaven. He knew what it meant to stand at the foot of the ladder that reached into heaven, into the very presence of God. Are you with me? You, you, can, you can react to this stuff. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think, I don't think it's that you're disinterested or that you're disengaged. Sometimes I think we don't know what's acceptable. It's acceptable to um, react. Amen. All right. I, I, you have no idea how much I love you guys. And, 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 and every pastor in this city and beyond would give a limb for a congregation like you that are so engaged and uh, but it's okay to react. Second, his second encounter with God was in his suffering. He, he suffered loss and heartache of all kinds. We're talking about Jacob's encounters with God. Uh, he, he lost the love of his life, Rachel. She died during childbirth as Benjamin came into the world. He had grieved over the loss of Joseph, believing for 20-some years that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. He suffered. Suffering, welcome to the Tom Miller cliche festival now, suffering either makes you or breaks you. It either makes you better or it makes you bitter. You, you become an overcomer or you are overcome. What doesn't kill you projects you into the next test. It's reminiscent to me of the clay on the wheel of the potter. The process is arduous. The strong hands of the potter mold and form the clay into the vessel that it's designed to be in the mind of the Creator. And so it is on the potter's wheel of our lives as we are molded by the strong hands of suffering and adversity. Not unlike Joseph, life's trials and tribulations mature us, grow us, and shape us. Suffering is the real-life school of learning. Either you pass and move on, or you go around the mountain Again, we ought not, church, we ought not to shrink from pain and sorrow. For in the end, they become our crown. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12 said, It's a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. And if we suffer, then we shall reign. Third, 
Jacob wrestled with God. We're talking about Jacob's encounters with God. It was Jacob, you may remember, who wrestled with the angel of Peniel, who most Bible scholars believe was actually a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. Some referred to it as a theophany. Others referred to it as a Christophany. It was, it was just after his reconciliation with his brother Esau. And the Bible says in verse 24 of chapter 32 of the book of Genesis. I think I got all the details in there. It says, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said unto him, what's your name? And he said, my name is Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Let me say this. Let me say this, church. Every difference maker in the kingdom has wrestled with God. Surrendering to God does not come without a struggle. If it does, you ain't really surrendered anything. You ain't really surrendered anything. Is this on? Is this an audience or an oil painter? You know I'm in trouble when I'm doing Henny Youngman up here. I've had people wrestle with God and then come into the office and give a large sum of money to the church or to missions. And, and, and that stuff is so personal that I can't share it with you. There's some fascinating stories. They'll come piling into my office with a check for thousands of dollars. I wrestled with God, and he said, this is what I was supposed to do. I have people, I've seen people struggle with God for direction in their life. And they wrestle with God over the plans that he has for them. Sean, our former youth pastor, wrestled over his call to Mexico. When? Where? How? Everyone who makes a difference for the kingdom has to wrestle with God first. Jacob did. He wrestled all night. He wouldn't give up. He wouldn't let go until finally God blessed him and God changed his name from supplanter and deceiver to Israel, Prince of God. Let me ask you Pharaoh's question. How old are you? Have you stood at the foot of the ladder of prayer? Have you suffered for Jesus? Have you wrestled with God? These are, the, these are the ways that you earn your stripes. That's how you pay your dues. These are the rites of passage for the hardcore, radical servant of God. The difference maker must first encounter God. The world changer must first endure by the trial of fire. Those 
destined to be light bearers for Christ are not inconvenienced by God. They're changed by God. It's my mom and my brother. Hey, I, I, I know and I understand that this isn't for the faint of heart. I'm not talking about the peripheral believer here. I'm talking about the one who's all in, the one who's committed, the one who's vested, the one who has bought in, sold out, laid it all on the line, made their choice, pushed all their chips to the middle of the table. I've told you before. I've been honest with you. This is not the easiest church to go to. I, I had someone this the week of VBS, what's that, two weeks ago, I had someone who, who used to go to this church stop me and say, say this. And remember, they used to go to this church. They said, Tom, you preach truth and love here. The church that I go to now preaches love and love. Alan Redpath said, The conversion of a soul happens in a moment, but the making of a saint is the process of a lifetime. How old are you? Jacob's days were few and evil as he looked back from the end of his life. Now he wished he, he would have lived for God sooner. Now he wished he would have served God more fervently. But that was water under the bridge. For Jacob, the opportunity was past. Maybe it's not too late for you. In Genesis 49 and on into 50, we see that Jacob settled in, in the land of Goshen in Egypt. And once again, time passed. 17 years to be exact. And now in chapter 49, Jacob sensed the end. That's a great trivia question, by the way. How long did Jacob live in Egypt after being brought there? 17 years. Um, and now, now he sensed that the end was near. His years were winding down. He summoned his family to his bedside. He prophesied over his sons. He blessed his children. And he gave instructions for his burial. Genesis 49, says, And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed, and he yielded up the ghost, and he was gathered unto his people. And now came the time of mourning. That was a big deal then, the time of mourning. I'm not so sure it is anymore. Lots of people don't even want funerals. They don't want anyone to fuss over them, and they, they don't want to be any trouble to the family. In my opinion, it's a mistake. We're cheating our family out of the opportunity to mourn, and we're cheating our children out of the opportunity to grasp the concept of death in a healthy way. We need to understand grief. In chapter 50, we read, beginning in verse 1, And Joseph, after his father gave up the ghost, died in his bed, Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. The physicians uh, uh, embalmed Jacob. Verse 3, Forty days were fulfilled for him. So are the so are fulfilled the days for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him for threescore and ten days. Forty days they mourned for him. In the old days, 
I'm at that stage of the game where I'm using that phrase. I actually, I actually called a funeral director to make sure I had my facts straight this week. Minutes of extensive research. And, and in the old days, funerals would be held in houses. The caskets of loved ones would sit in the living room for days until the funeral took place. The morticians, hear me now, the morticians would even prepare and embalm the body while it was laid out in the parlor of the home. Hence the term funeral parlor. This provided ample time to comfort the grieving, process the loss, and teach our children about death. We need to allow ourselves to run the natural and healthy process of grief. What is grief? Funny you should ask. Grief is the sensation of loss or sadness when something in which emotion has been invested in has been taken away. So it can be the death of a loved one, loss of a job, the end of a relationship, death of a dream, or any of a host of other disappointments of varying magnitudes. Grief typically runs through these five stages. Number one, I'm going to move very quickly through this, denial. The first reaction to a significant loss is to deny the reality of the situation. I remember as a little boy, when my mom would get bad news on the phone, she would say, oh God, no. People often say things like, no, it can't be. Our brain wants desperately to bypass the pain. But reality always wins. Denial buffers the immediate shock of the loss, numbing us to our emotions. We, we hide from the facts as a temporary response that carries us through that initial wave of pain. Second, bargaining. The normal reaction to, is a feeling of helplessness, uh, and we often strive to regain control Sometimes with a series of if-only statements. If only I would have done this, or if only this would have happened. We may even attempt to make a deal with God in an effort to postpone the inevitable, along with the accompanying pain. As denial runs its course and, and bargaining doesn't garner the desired result, anger is often the next stage of grief. Things didn't go our way, and it hurts. The emotion we feel longs for expression. And anger can be a natural outlet. As we work our way through this step, we need to find someone to be angry at. Someone failed. Someone let us down. And anger is a normal feeling. Next is depression. At some point, the emotions of the one grieving are worn raw. Depression is an emotional shutdown that keeps us from feeling loss and dealing with the pain at least for a while. It's a self-protection mechanism of sorts that prevents you from carrying more than you are safely able to bear. It's actually an absence of emotion. It's emotional flatlining. The emotions shut down as we regroup and get our bearings again. We feel nothing for a while. And in the meantime, our tank is slowly refilling and our heart is preparing itself to go back out into the real world and return to joy. 
The final stage of grief is acceptance. Times of sadness still come, but the waves are less intense, shorter in duration, and less frequent. No matter what kind of loss we experience, we must eventually get to the place where we can say the magic word, goodbye. Goodbye is the period at the end of the sentence. It's a milestone where we turn the corner and begin to move past the pain, past the loss, into the great unknown of what God has in store for us. Life will never be the same. It's true. The scars may never go away, but the pain does subside. Life is meant to go on, even after great loss. Ecclesiastes 7.3 says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. I believe grief is God-ordained and healthy. If we sidestep the stages of grief, then we will heal improperly, like a, like a bone that mends incorrectly. The course grief runs is not easy, but in the end, it is good. Genesis 50 and verse 4 says of Joseph, And when the days of his mourning were past. It was a new day. There would be a new normal. You can feel good again. You will feel good again. At least if you allow grief to run its healthy course. And when the days of his mourning were past. Jacob moved to Egypt at 130 years of age after 20-some years of being estranged from Joseph. He dies there after 17 years at the ripe old age of 147. Joseph is in mourning. So, what can we learn today? What was the message about today? It was about life and death. We remember first the journey of life. Formation, discovery, commitment, and legacy. Where are you on the journey? How old are you? That was Pharaoh's question to Jacob. And it's my question to you. Soon your days will be behind you. Few and evil are my days, Jacob said. And then we die. And it's okay to mourn. It's okay to grieve. What we don't want is to have to lament a life wasted. We don't want to have to mourn unfulfilled potential and missed opportunity. I ask you again, how old are you? Would you bow your head with me as we prepare to close? Again, as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, and that's just to, to give privacy to your neighbor and, and uh, just to kind of focus you in on, on my closing words here. You think about the journey of life. There's the, those formative years. There's the discovery years. There's those years of commitment. And, and I mentioned in the sermon that, that in general, those are the ministry years. That's the block of time where whatever God has called you to, you do. 
And then there's the legacy. We look back at our life and we say, you know, what difference did I make? I remember talking to a man that had, had nearly died. He had been on his deathbed. And he, he said to me, he said, Tom, he said, the only two things I could think about were, was my family prepared to live without me? And what difference had I made for God? There aren't any do-overs on our deathbed. You can't go back. The only thing you can do is look at where you are today and begin to press forward in the name of Jesus. I'm so thankful for the gospel message because I believe this is the gospel message in one sentence. The gospel message is you go from where you are. I'm glad that we can set aside those things that are behind us. We mentioned in the sermon that we all have skeletons in the closet. The days of my life have been evil. Where are you heading? That's what matters. So today I want to give you the opportunity as we close to give your life to Jesus. He's the only one of all the religions in the world Jesus is what sets Christianity apart. And that's because he dealt with the sin issue. And so today I can give you the opportunity to give your life to Jesus. And by faith, you say, Jesus, would you wash away my sin? You paid the price on Calvary's cross. And now my sins can be washed away. You can be made righteous. You can be justified. You can be sanctified. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. And all of those things happen by faith. And so we receive that from you today, Jesus. Lord, we didn't earn it. It's not my righteousness. It's your righteousness. And I receive it from you by faith in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me just close with this. If you want to receive Jesus as your Savior today, I want to be able to include you in my closing prayer. Would you just slip up your hand? I won't do anything to embarrass you. I just want to be able to include you in my closing prayer. You want to receive Jesus as your Savior today. You want to begin that journey forward, living for Him. I see that hand on my left. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Someone else today, you need to receive Jesus. I see that hand way in the back. Bless your heart. Someone else today, you need to receive Jesus. You want your sins to be washed away. You want to be cleansed and made righteous. You can live for Him from this day forward. You can encounter God. Someone else today, just a few more seconds as I wait for you to respond. Lord, thank you for those that that responded. Lord, I pray that, that they would let someone in on what they did today. They would tell a trusted friend, a, a Christian or a member of the staff that, that I gave my life to Jesus today. I want to begin to live for him. I want it to be different from here on out. I want to repent of my sins. I want to turn from, from the way I've been living my life and to begin to live according to his plan. Lord, for, for others that are here today, Lord, I pray that we would learn what it means to wrestle with God that we would learn what it means to stand at the foot of the ladder of prayer, 
that sees into the very throne room of heaven. Lord, I pray that we would see suffering different, that it wouldn't be an inconvenience, but it would be part of our encounter with you. The days of his mourning were past. Lord, we thank you for the stages of grief that help us to heal right. And for the one that's suffering hurt today, maybe there's been a great disappointment. Maybe that relationship has gone bad. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Lord, I pray that today they would begin to understand the process of grief. They would give it over to you. They would get to that place in a healthy way where they can put the period at the end of the sentence. Turn the corner. Enter the new normal. Begin to walk in the victory that you have for us. We thank you for all of that this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Well, as we close, let's